Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're speaking on Monday, May 15th, 2023. We are well into spring now here and moving quickly toward the summer months. As we do so, more New Yorkers are spending more time outdoors and there are major programs like the city's open streets and open restaurants initiatives that are being expanded or revisited or debated, as they so often are. Those are conversations among many related to our public spaces in New York City, how New Yorkers live, get around, recreate, collaborate, innovate, argue, and so forth. And among the other debates in this discussion include the recent advancements at long last of the congestion pricing program for New York City, which will largely apply to a core of Manhattan, but impacts the entire city and region, and what shape that program should finally take. Also in this discussion, questions around parking regulations, the allocation of public space for cars, bikes, pedestrians, dining areas, deliveries, trash containers, and much more. So today on the show, what does it mean to create a more livable New York City? As almost every decision about the allocation of public space turns into a big fight in New York, where can we find common ground? What does some of the data say? How can New York City try to do things being done successfully elsewhere in the world? How do we account for vulnerable populations and more? To get into a lot of this, Sarah Lind is with me. She's co-executive director of Open Plans, a nonprofit advocacy organization whose mission is to transform the streets of New York City to be truly livable for its residents and visitors. Open Plans, according to its website, uses tactical urbanism, grassroots advocacy, policy, and targeted journalism to promote structural reforms within city government that support livable streets, neighborhoods, and the city at large. Along with the aforementioned debates, advancements, and policy discussions that are happening now around congestion pricing, bus and bike lanes, parking requirements, the open streets and open restaurants programs, and more, other important context to this conversation includes that in February of this year, Mayor Eric Adams named Yating Liu as the city's first ever chief public realm officer tasked with leading coordinating efforts around the city's public spaces, including making great new public spaces in the public realm. Open Plans was a major proponent of creating this position and praised the mayor for taking this step and others. And part of the city is doing in partnership to some extent with the state is moving ahead on key public realm and other recommendations from the new New York panel assembled by the mayor and Governor Hochul to create a new vision for the city's central business districts in this COVID post COVID era where people aren't going into the office as much. There's much more appreciation for open and outdoor space and other considerations. Now, just quickly before I bring Sarah Lind of Open Plans on here, if you missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. We've been diving into a number of different topics, many great guests. A few quick highlights in recent weeks include 
a really good, interesting discussion with State Senator Gustavo Rivera of the Bronx, breaking down a lot of the new state budget that was passed at the beginning of May here in 2023. Also had a discussion with a leading housing advocate, Sia Weaver, about why housing policy negotiations fell apart in the budget. Then got a different perspective on that uh, very recently here on the show with Basha Gerhards of the Real Estate Board of New York, who talked about real estate community and developers and their interests in housing policy, what wasn't done in the state budget, which was just about everything, and what comes next. And I'll also highlight recently on the show, very different topic, City Council recently released a mental health roadmap and the City Council's Mental Health Committee Chair, Council Member Linda Lee of Queens, joined me to discuss mental health-related policy in the city and much more. So that's a smattering of recent guests and episodes. There's plenty of others in the podcast feed and at the Gotham Gazette site. And of course, also at GothamGazette.com, you can find all of our reporting on city and state government and politics. All right, Sarah Lind of Open Plans, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. Beautiful weather. Can't complain. All right, good. So let's just start broadly. When we say a livable city, people you know, have a little bit of a sense of what that could mean. Do you have a way that you describe it to people? You define what a livable city means uh, and how you think about it and how your organizing work, your policy work. Um, sort of defines what a livable or a more livable city is? Yeah, absolutely. So we think of a livable city as one where, you know, people enjoy the public space, where they can get to work and get to school easily and safely, uh, where they can, you know, build community with their neighbors, um, you know, where they're you know, they can just have joy on their streets. And specifically, we focus on streets and sidewalks because in New York City, that's the bulk of our public space, right? We have some parks, we have some plazas. Um, a lot of New Yorkers don't have easy access to parks, um, but we all spend time on our streets and sidewalks and they can be conduits for traffic. They can be, you know, a place that you walk to get from one place to another, but they can also be public space places again, where, you know, kids can, you know, ride their scooters to school and say hi to their friends, uh, places where neighbors can sit and talk to each other. Um, and so, you know, that's our vision. And there's a lot of reasons why in many places we don't get there, you know, and so we, we work on the challenges that prevent us from that joyful, livable city. And when we boil a lot of this down, it comes down to allocating a very large percentage of public space to streets that are dedicated to cars and trucks and other moving vehicles. And the movement that you're a part of and a key leader in to rethink how a lot of that space is allocated. Is that a fair way to boil a bunch of this down? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to your point, the vast majority of space between buildings is just for the movement and storage of vehicles. Um, <clears throat> we have a lot of curb space in our city, which again, mostly is used for free storage of private vehicles. Uh, Transportation Alternative did a recent analysis that shows that we could have 13 central parks worth of public space in that space. So that is a really uh, significant- Just the parking cost. space? Just or... the park, yeah, okay. just what's now dedicated to parking, mm -hmm. exactly. Interesting. Before we before we get more into that, um, 
tactical urbanism. Explain what that is and how your your organization is is part of using tactical urbanism to achieve uh, a more livable city and what what that includes and how you know there there's as you obviously well know and you're often working to combat there's a lot of skepticism out there there's a lot of enthusiasm of course but there's also a lot of skepticism out there about this idea of like oh you're just anti car and people need to get around and we need to be able to get to work and people need to be able to you know move supplies and all of this stuff when you uh what is tactical urbanism and when you say when we say again urbanism what's the What's the sort of ideal, you know, there's there's a lot of this discussion of 15-minute cities and what does that mean? And so say a little bit about what tactical urbanism is. And when we talk about a, a sense of urbanism and a livable city, is there um, a model out there to think about? Is there a way to sort of make it a little more concrete for people after you talk about the, the tactic side? So go ahead on those two sort of uh, sides of, of the coin here on this question. Yeah, those are uh, big questions. Um, So tactical urbanism is the idea that um, it's hard sometimes for people to envision what could be. And you talk about, you know, the city and our vision for it. But when we're just so used to seeing our streets and sidewalks the way they are now, it can be hard for people to understand that vision. And so the idea to go out and just do it, um, and we call it sort of tactical urbanism because it's not necessarily done with the permission of the city. And it's not always permanent, um, but again, it kind of helps people see that. So one example we did a couple of years ago was just went and built a trash corral in a parking space so that instead of the trash on the sidewalk, we would put it there. Um, you know, DOT was not happy about it. It was torn down. Since then, there's been uh, some really cool trash corrals put up, for example, in the meatpacking district. They just have a permanent trash corral now so that the trash is it's not in containers, which we also really want. It's just in the curb lane so that when you're walking down the sidewalk, you're not, you know, tripping over, walking around the piles of trash. And it's easier for the sanitation workers to pick up because they're not having to, you know, climb through the bumper to bumper parked cars. Um, So it was it was unauthorized when we did it, but it showed people a possibility and it has, you know, become an an authorized thing in some places. Uh, It can be that it can be simple. Like we we just um, kind of painted on a curb bump out this weekend on Amsterdam Avenue at 111th just to show people what it might feel like if there weren't cars parked all the way up to the crosswalk and how you could have a a more of a sense of space and safety when you cross. Um, So that's the tactical urbanism piece. I think the bigger, the other question is much bigger, obviously. Um, I always like to start off by saying, you know, there are advocates on Twitter who use the hashtag ban cars. Um, That is not our approach. We are not in favor of banning cars. Um, We are in favor of giving people choices and of making sure that our public space benefits, you know, the entire public and not just the, the private individuals who do use cars. That said, some people need cars. We, you know, that's a reality in the city, especially given uh, the history of kind of the destruction of uh, public transit. And, you know, now we're trying to build it up again. But there are a lot of neighborhoods without great public transportation. And there are people who need cars for certain reasons. That said, a lot of New Yorkers don't really need cars. And there are a lot of neighborhoods where there are great ways to get around. Um, and, you know, there are millions of New Yorkers who don't own and use cars, and we believe that that public space should benefit them too. Uh, there was so much more in your question, but yeah, no, well, let, well, let me follow there. that up. Yeah, is there 
Is there a city? Is there a, a city in the United States that's doing a lot of what you want right? Is there a model in this country? Is there separately? Not 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 as the same question. Is there a international place that you point to and you say, you know, this is this is a lot of the model again. Not we're not trying to replicate anything in New York City, but places that are doing a lot of these things right in terms of allocation of public space in terms of more livability in terms of as you said you know being able to sort of get around to school and work without um you know fearing for our lives so much about you know speeding cars and big trucks and all of all the stuff that sometimes comes into play are there places doing it well or doing it right you know a lot of people often point obviously to, to some european cities but where have you either been or or read about that you that you like some of what they're doing especially maybe in the, in this country yeah, definitely. I think that's important, actually, because, you know, the, the refrain, we're not Europe, um, is fair. We're not. Uh, yeah, there are. I, I don't think there's any one city that's somehow magically doing everything right. But a lot of different cities are trying different things. A lot of this is, you know, pilot projects and try it out iteration. Um, you know, we're not asking the city to completely transform overnight. Uh, we have to find out what works in different neighborhoods, um, some that are doing good stuff. Uh, you know, Portland has a great bike network. Um, you know, L.A. just passed their open restaurants program to, to really allow more of that. Um, you know, Denver has 20 mile per hour speed limits, which we're, we're working on here, but don't have yet uh, to make their streets safer. So there, there are cities. San Francisco is doing great work. Um, you know, dozens of cities around the country have eliminated parking mandates. So there are definitely different cities doing different things that we're, we are advocating for. Um, lots of great European cities for sure. But, uh, you know, I, I think those are interesting to look at, but I do agree that that's not necessarily what we need to model it on. I'll also just say for listeners, um, we have a, a project at Open Plans called Street Films. Um, Clarence, he's great. He he goes around to a lot of these different cities and documents some of the really interesting things they're doing. So just to, you know, if you, if you want to really see it and and you know in visual form, uh, go check out his street films for sure. Okay. So let's get into more specifics here. You, you've thrown out a bunch of uh, different examples, and now you you know noted some things that are happening other places that would be uh, good models. So so I mentioned a few in the introduction, and there's some things that are really live right now. So let's talk about the open streets program and the open restaurants program. And those obviously coincide in, in some places, although open restaurants, you know, much, much more sort of ubiquitous um, program across the city and, and open streets applying to certain corridors. So um, let, let's start in the open streets. As I mentioned, obviously, weather warming up, people looking to be outside even more. Um, what's the status from your point of view of the city's open streets program what's happening around it right now as we speak here in in the middle of may 2023 what are you worried about what are you encouraged by what do you want to see next where where are we at with this program yeah i think it's a great program and i think there's a lot of room for growth we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, when the program was put into place, that there were open streets all over the city. Um, but within the year or two after that, we saw a lot of places kind of lose their open streets, partly because they have to be maintained. And uh, the city relies on volunteers to maintain the open streets, to move the barricades, to make sure they're clean, to make sure they're safe. Um, and so we saw, for example, there were almost no active streets in the Bronx last year. Um, so we see that as an equity issue. You know, 
it, it often coincides with neighborhoods that don't have great access to parks, also don't have the resources to maintain an open street, precisely the neighborhoods that could really benefit from that place for building community and enjoying outdoor space. Uh, so at Open Plans, we've been advocating for a long time for the city to provide more assistance to neighborhoods to uh, take care of their public space and activate it. They've been working on that. Um, I think, you know, it's it's been a process. Um, we're excited about, as you mentioned, Yateng uh, for both open streets and more. Um, but we're really excited because uh, DOT just announced that they are going to be dedicating significantly more funding to supporting open streets partners, especially in those, um, you know, equity uh, priority areas. Um, so this is, again, going to be a continuing work in progress, but it's really exciting to see uh, the city supporting those streets. Is there, um, is there a, a, a goal for this season for the Open Streets program that you're, you're trying to help hit? Is there a way in which people should understand um, you know, that, that the goal from your perspective should be eventually, um, you know, that there's, that everybody's sort of within a certain range of an open street corridor where again, you know, vehicle traffic is extremely limited. The streets are opened up for activities and, uh, just travel for people on foot or bike or in strollers and, and scooters and other things. Um, are there are there goals for this season? Are there longer term goals? How do you think about sort of the the growth of this program and and you know any sort of metrics we should put on it? So a couple of things. First, I would say it really depends on where the street is for the success of it. Um, sometimes on a on a residential street, it's somewhat less successful because there's not already an activation there. Um, it's really great, like you mentioned, the open restaurants program. It's really great on blocks where there are maybe a couple of restaurants. They pull out more chairs, more people are sitting in the street. Um, you know, I was just on, like I said, Amsterdam Avenue at 111th this weekend. People out just, you know, grabbed a sandwich from somewhere. They're sitting around with their kids. You know, kids are learning how to ride a bike. Um, so that's kind of the vision for a successful open street. I think long term, um, we'd like to see DOT make more of these also permanent open streets in the sense that they're putting in actual infrastructure that, you know, uh, continually slows traffic. They're not relying on volunteers to put out barricades every Saturday, but they're creating slow streets that are self-maintaining. Uh, we see this uh, most famously um, on 34th Avenue in Queens, a, an amazingly successful open street that they've put in um, a lot of great infrastructure on, Some fabulous bike lanes, pedestrian space, you know, planters, which obviously make the street beautiful and slow traffic. Um, and then they have have a bunch of other ones they're working on around the city. So we're just anxiously waiting for those continued, uh, they're called street improvement projects, um, to continue and to continue to build, like I said, these self-enforcing streets. Mm -hmm. And the New York City uh, Department of Transportation has an open streets program website that everybody can visit. There's a long list of, of open streets in the program, although I don't know how uh, up to date all of this is kept. And as you said, some of it, um, you know, very often has been heavily reliant on volunteers and people setting up infrastructure and then, uh, you know, some local challenges sometimes and all that. Let me ask you about this question of um, temporary versus permanent. You know, a lot of the a lot of the open streets, um, you know, they do it on on weekends. Um, you know, things start sort of like around or after the sort of rush hour on Friday evening and go through Sunday. 
is there are there challenges to doing it sort of part time like that where it doesn't where where some of these programs then don't develop um you know people the sort of awareness of it um is you know but then if you if you have something permanent and people are often seeing like hey we've got all these streets you know closed down but nobody's out here playing and hanging out and it seems like it's just you know, closing off uh, vehicle traffic to make congestion elsewhere. And nobody's really, you know, that you get, you get those sort of hackles. How do you think about sort of what, what approach the city should take in terms of regulating the programs and allowing different hours and, and whether there should be more permanence to some of this and, and how to evaluate those questions? Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, you know, some of these streets, like I said, depending on the neighborhood, um, for example, Amsterdam is a major uh, through street on on a weekday. There's bus lines, you know. There's there's a lot of deliveries. So making that permanent, I don't think would be really feasible. We could make changes to you know reallocate some of the space. You know, we'd love to see wider bike lanes. We'd love to see a dedicated bus lane. But making it a permanent open street might be you know just technically a little bit difficult. 34th Avenue, on the other hand, um, you know, is a great example of a place where some of those permanent changes make sense. Um, I did also want to mention one other part of the program that we're really excited about, which is um, open streets for schools. And so this is around schools um, where they kind of, again, limit that vehicle traffic to make it safer for kids going to and from school. We know in New York City as a whole, uh, the most dangerous places for kids are around schools. It's where the majority of crashes involving kids happen. So making those streets safe is really important. And in fact, we did a recent poll um, which showed that people are overwhelmingly supportive of dedicating streets around schools to children um, and making them safer, even if that means, you know, losing parking spaces, you know, affecting traffic, um, all of those things. So that's a really, I think, kind of under uh, undervalued program that DOT has that we are working really hard to expand as well. Hmm. Um as soon as people, I want to get to open restaurants in a minute, but as soon as people, some people hear us discussing a lot of this, there are people who uh, find a lot of this appealing, I think, but some of it goes back to, well, how am I supposed to get around? You know, the buses are so slow. Uh, I'm, you know, um, the biking seems too dangerous. You know, there's a lot of issues around the sort of transit infrastructure that's not driving vehicles even you know individual vehicles how do you um you know connect the dots there with a better transit infrastructure bus buses moving at better speeds um more protected bike lanes how how do you, what's the vision and how do you connect it and how do you talk to people around these questions where they see progress seemingly so halting, especially when it comes to speeding up the buses, that people get sort of disillusioned by by so much of this conversation. And it's like, yeah, I'm just going to keep my car and keep driving around. Well, first, I do want to say that even among New Yorkers who have cars, which is not a majority of New Yorkers, most of them don't actually use their cars to commute. They might use them to, you know, go visit a friend in a inaccessible area of the borough. They might use it to go grocery shopping. But we know that the, you know, vast majority of New Yorkers don't use their cars to commute. So I think that's important to just put out front. And we might talk about congestion pricing later. But for example, uh, commutes into the central business district by car, we know are only four uh, percent of low-income people commute that way. So it's, you know, it's very small. 
Um, but yeah, it, it's it has to be a holistic solution. We can't expect people to get out of their cars if they don't have better ways to get around. 100%. That said, it has to be done together, right? Because to your point, you put in a bus lane, but you're not getting people out of cars and they park in the bus lane and the buses go slow. You know, people then say, well, this isn't working. It's not working for me. I'm not going to switch to the bus. This bus lane is stupid. Um, you know, so we have to have it all work together. One of the reasons why we really focus on enforcement, actually, um, you know, the bus lane camera program was very successful, but somewhat limited. We were really excited to see in the state budget this year, that program expand. Um, the more we can have uh, enforcement that's automated, where people just know, if I do this illegal thing, I'm going to get a ticket. So right now, people think, I'll just gamble. You know, I'm, I'm parking the bus lane. I'll park in the bike lane. I'll park double park illegally. And the chances of getting a ticket are so small that it's worth the risk. With automated enforcement, you know, we can shift behavior because people will know, actually, I'm just, I'm going to get a ticket. So I'm just not going to do it. Um, and so it's that behavior shift that's really important in creating a bus lane that works so people can get there quickly. You know, a bike lane that's not blocked by cars all the time, making it, you know, rendering it useless for safety purposes. Um, you know, I ride my son to school on a cargo bike and we luckily have a bike lane on Columbus that we bike down. I would say at least half the time we have to move out into traffic at some point in the ride because someone's parked in the bike lane. And, you know, that's scary. It would be scary for me, but it's very scary with my son on the bike. Um, so we've got to do better at enforcing these lanes so that, you know, people do feel comfortable with that mode shift. Mm -hmm. In your experience advocating for all of this, including those improvements around the bus lanes and the bike lanes that we do have and expanding those and making sure that they're protected properly. And then the enforcement's there where and even what's happened with the open streets program and the open restaurants program what's your assessment and what do you tell people about how city government is functioning these days you know there seems to be um and this is not a new thing but there seems to be real problems with sort of eye on the ball execution um you know just just getting things done that even you know you can understand sometimes if a mayoral administration doesn't prioritize certain things. And then the implementation, the enforcement's not there. And you say, yeah, of course, you know, this is not something the mayor cares about, even though you might want it to be implemented better, enforced better. But but when you have, you know, consecutive mayors and administrations prioritizing certain things, championing certain things, and even then doing the work to sort of put in those lanes or do those things, but then you don't get the other parts of the implementation or the execution or the enforcement, it, it's it's mystifying in some ways. And maybe it's part of the you know vast challenges of running New York City government, which is obviously an immense undertaking and very challenging thing to do. But where where are we at here right now from your point of view in, in the middle of May in 2023? The Adams administration is now pretty darn settled in, you know, almost a year and a half in. Um, you know, where are we at in the ability of, of city government to, you know, to sort of do these things and function and and just sort of implement and enforce and, and carry things out? There's big uh, holdups in the execution of expanding bus lanes that the mayor promised. You know, there's all sorts of challenges here. What's your assessment and how should people be thinking about this and what should they be doing about it? 
Yeah. So I think um, from our conversations, it seems pretty clear, actually, that the mayor does prioritize this and does want to get this done. Um, you know, we talked to DOT and they have a lot of ideas. They have plans for where they could, for example, put in these needed bike lanes. Um, I would say that from our perspective, the biggest holdup is local council members, uh, local community boards that, um, you know, either outright block projects or kind of slow walk projects. Um, and so it, it's easy to say, you know, DOT put in these bike lane miles, uh, but not in my district, right? Like, well, not on that street. You know, we we need that, we need that parking there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when DOT is going around and trying to work with council members and uh, they're not getting the kind of support that they need, it's hard to finish those lane miles. It's hard to put in these projects. I think that, um, you know, people with cars who park on the street have a very vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And they are very motivated to call their council members all the time, show up at community boards, you know, email their council members, come to hearings, because, again, they have a vested interest and they don't want to lose it. People who would benefit from changes to that status quo, again, it's harder for them to see. It's some people might not even realize like that it could be different. They don't know this hearing's going on because they're busy working. They don't have a specific reason why they would show up. I, I will say I think Riders Alliance has done an amazing job organizing um, transit riders, and we saw some really great wins from that in this budget. Um, but you know, pedestrians, uh, people who you know take the bus but don't realize there's an advocacy organization around it. They just don't know that they could be doing that. So to your point, uh, what what could people do? Call your council member. They hear from the people who want the status quo. They need to hear from you. Uh, Call your council member, show up at your community boards, join your community board, Um, you know, be out there vocal about the changes you want because it's it's easy to maintain the status quo. It's a lot harder to build a city that's going to work better for everyone. you, I'm looking at open plans. Your organization has a legislative agenda put out at the beginning of this year, 2023. Um, I want to get into some some of the other specifics in it. You have four main pillars to this agenda. Uh, one is create more joyful and equitable public spaces. Another is reform the curb. Another is eliminate parking mandates. And the fourth is make our streets more livable. And obviously there's crossover among uh, all of these, basically. Um, and, and and there's many specific planks that include pieces of legislation and then also just certain uh, governmental administration issues and things like enforcement and other decisions that can be made just really by the mayoral administration or others. Um, and I want to get into a bunch of specifics. But one of the things that is uh, coming down in this realm is a reevaluation and likely city council legislation related to the open restaurants program. And this is obviously major decisions about how public space in the city is used. What is the sort of status of this situation? And what are you hoping to see from city council legislation that will ideally, in concert with the mayoral administration, lead to some codified restaurant program that uses outdoor and public space in a way that, you know, by and large, New Yorkers approve of. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and New Yorkers certainly do. We see it, especially now with the warmer weather, but even all winter, we see people out loving the outdoor dining, loving to be able to, you know, enjoy that space with their friends and it enlivens the streets. Um, so I do think it's really important that we get this right and get this done. Uh, in terms of the status, um, it's been a lot of hurry up and wait. You know, we hear we're about to pass the bill. No, nope, we're still negotiating. Okay, it's coming tomorrow. No, it's coming next week. Um, so it's been uh, hard, I think, for advocates to track. It's It's been an ongoing negotiation between the administration and the city council. Um, but this is a really important time for a few reasons. One, just, uh, you know, logistically, restaurants had to once again ramp up for the summer with no understanding of what the permanent program would look like. You know, they want to make investments in their outdoor dining structures, but they don't know if next week they're going to have to tear them down because the council bans them. It's just been... I think really disrespectful to restaurants who've put in a lot of work and time and resources on this program with zero guidance from the city. So that's one piece. But also uh, this program was put in place through an emergency order in the pandemic. Um, and it has been re-upped every, gosh, it's something like every 30 days, they have to re-up this emergency order. Um, there's a lawsuit saying that we're no longer in a COVID emergency, therefore uh, the order is not valid and the program is not valid. We're waiting any day that lawsuit could come down, but given that last week uh, Biden let the federal COVID emergency order lapse, we, we think that this is really a precarious time. If that lawsuit came down tomorrow and said the program's invalid, restaurants would have 30 days to completely dismantle their sheds. And like you said, there's a lot of sheds out there, a lot of dining structures out there. That would be chaos on our streets. And again, just incredibly hard on the restaurants who have you know, been struggling to survive through the pandemic. Uh, so we really think, you know, the council and the administration have got to get this done. They have to get this done tomorrow. What what are the key what are the key things that in from your point of view should be in the program? You know, what what are the you know key pillars of what the right program should look like? And where does um, you know, where are the questions around the sort of like uh you know, outdoor dining sheds that are no longer being used or the things that become, uh, you know, blighted, you know, where does that fit into the discussion? Because that's often as obviously, you know, and, and um, you have to answer this question often, you know, what, what do we do about those sheds that become, you know, neighborhood problems? Um, but first, what, what should be the key pillars that are part of this program? Yeah, so a few key things some of which I think are mostly uh, done negotiated, being negotiated, and some of which are not. Uh, we've been advocating strongly for the program to be under DOT, to remain under DOT as the organization that manages and plans the entire streetscape. This is part of the streetscape. It's the right place for the program. Our understanding is that's probably going to be the case. Um, fees and, and restaurants paying for the space. Uh, this is public space and it's it's valuable. So we do believe that restaurants should pay for the space. They haven't been up till now. Um, and we, we don't agree with that. That said, uh, the fees should be, um, you know, sliding and uh, re uh, reflect the value of that space. So, you know, a, a restaurant in Midtown is using obviously incredibly valuable space and that fee should be higher versus, you know, a, a small restaurant in a neighborhood somewhere, you know, where a high fee would make it hard for the restaurant to participate. So sliding fees we think is very important. Um, and then the structures themselves, uh, currently the current version of the bill would would prohibit any structure it would be 
chairs and, and tables on the street. Um, and that's just not realistic. Uh, you know, that's not, people don't want to eat like that. I think that, um, it might be reasonable to say, you know, no walls, no, no doors. That's, that's, a building. Um, but, you know, the ability to have some coverage, the ability to have, you know, uh, some flooring so that people are sitting in a nice space. You know, we've seen some of these structures are so creative. Um, some of them, you know, there's a there's a rail car one. There's one in Harlem that's really celebrated, you know, some of the graffiti artists in the area. Like they're individual, they're unique. They reflect the culture of the neighborhood. Like, I don't think we should lose those. Um, and the current legislation would would essentially make us lose those. Um, so giving some options for, you know, structures that still can reflect uh, the restaurant's character. And then finally, a year round program. Um, right now, the legislation uh, would prohibit, uh, would, would make the program seasonal. So only from March 31st to November to October 31st, basically. And that's gonna, again, really limit the program because Small restaurants are not going to be able to store all those materials. They don't have a place for that. They hardly have a place, you know, for for their kitchen and their tables inside. So it's going to just make it hard for them to participate. They're probably just going to give up. Um, and, you know, so many of those restaurants didn't have this before. We had the sidewalk cafe program before. It was limited almost exclusively to Manhattan. This outdoor dining program has really expanded the ability of smaller restaurants in you know, the outer boroughs to participate and to offer their neighbors this amazing opportunity to dine outdoors. A seasonal program is probably going to limit that. We saw in Paris uh, when they introduced a seasonal program, 60 seven, something like that percent of restaurants just stopped participating. Um, you know, it almost feels like it's been put in there by the council as a poison pill to kill the program that people complain about, uh, that some people complain about, a lot of people. People who love the program are too busy having fun, you know, dining outdoors with their friends to, to say how much they love it. Um, and then to your point about the sheds, the, the ones that are not being maintained, for sure, those should come down. Uh, I don't think anyone thinks like, yeah, let's keep those up. Um, and I think a lot of it is just this the precariousness of not understanding what the permanent program will look like. Some restaurants have just let them fall into disrepair because they're like, you haven't told us what we should be investing in, so we're not investing anymore. Um, but you know, the, the permanent program would come with some design guidelines, and then we can enforce those, right? And and we can say, you know, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, speaking of design guidelines and just going back to that point and then something else you said, you know, this question around. You know, people raise also that we're just you you want fee on it. So I understand that it's not just giving, but but this idea of allowing private businesses to use this much public space and in some cases building structures that seem like it's just another room of the restaurant and it's not exactly um, you know, I mean, I know we're moving away from this to some degree, but it's part of the reason people still like the outdoor dining is, you know, that it's more COVID safe or just safe in terms of uh, breathability and and you know. Um, any other any other transmissible uh, sicknesses that might be going around, um, but that a lot of restaurants are just sort of putting out an outdoor, you know, it's like an, it's just a, a separated room of the of the restaurant. Um, is is that something that's a concern for you that that some of these sheds are too sort of like permanent, as you said, they're om they're almost like an extension of a, of the building. Yeah. So first of all, the argument that we are giving away public space for private use 
Let's be clear. Right now, we are giving away almost our entire curb space for private use, for the free storage of private vehicles. There are 3 million free parking spots in New York City on our curb, and that is one person using that space for their private gain. So a restaurant that allows you know, hundreds of New Yorkers every day to eat outside is, is much more of a public use than one single car being stored. And even when that curb is priced, you know, with meters, it is vastly underpriced. I'd love to see the city uh, determine that the, the curb is worth X amount. Restaurants have to pay for it. And so do you if you want to park your car there. So I, I think that we're giving away public space argument is entirely unfounded. Um, and yeah, I, I, and to the point of, you know, the, the indoor outdoor sheds, um, I agree. I think that uh, it would be nice, you know, in the winter to have the opportunity to put up maybe some kind of um, protective, you know, like I said, some covering. But um, in terms of activating public space, we do want these to be open. Um, that's what really makes the streetscape feel lively. So I think at Open Plans, we, we support a more open structure, but again, not just tables and chairs in the street. On the point about public space and curb space and parking. Um, it, is it your viewpoint that there should be no free parking, that every parking space that does stay, and obviously you want to eliminate many of them, um, but every parking space that does stay should be priced in some way, whether it's meters around the clock or a parking permit program or things of that nature? What's the... Um, let's say you got your your druthers or some version of it and and many many of these um uh, curbside parking spaces were repurposed for other uses what about the parking that does remain what what should happen with that yeah so pricing the curb appropriately actually benefits everyone um we see we've seen in other cities uh they've implemented things called parking benefits districts for example where they do price the curb um you know at a at a reasonable rate to the demand for that curb. Um, and it and then that money that they they gain from it is reinvested directly in that community for you know street improvement projects, infrastructure investment. Um, so neighbors like it because they're getting they're seeing some value from it. But it also benefits the people who park actually because when you price the curb appropriately, it creates turnover. So when you're you know wanting to go to a store and you're driving around and around looking for parking because people are just storing their vehicles there, that's not to your benefit. When we when we price the curb, people come in, they do their shopping, they leave. Um, and even in, you know, so we see that actually uh, driving around time dramatically decreases when, when we have a priced curb. And then even again, um, you know, if, if you're looking to park your car, you know, long term, the priced curb um, incentivizes people to only park there if that's what they really need, not, um, you know, that they're... Uh, Again, they're shopping somewhere else and they're parking in your neighborhood. So there's actually really important uh, work we can do with a priced curb that benefits everyone, even drivers. Um, you know, the status quo right now, again, it's really not working for people. Um, and I think that it's important. One of the things we do is try to demonstrate that everyone benefits from this, that we're not losing things. People are gaining things. In the ideal here for you, there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people who wind up giving up their cars, right? Who, who, who decide uh, that um, it's not in their interest in a variety of ways to hold on to their cars. Say a little bit about, about getting people to get there. Maybe, maybe this isn't the right way to think about it, but in some ways you want to create conditions that are both 
attractive in certain ways for a livable city, but also it becomes so difficult to own a car and get around in a car and park a car that it's not worth the hassle for people and they give it up. But in many cases, they give it up begrudgingly. And it, it, I don't know if that's exactly the mindset for the livable city that you want. So say a little bit about that that potential transition and how, you know, the vision from you, from, you know, open plans and like-minded people for that livability transition and the notion of getting people to a place both out of um, carrots and sticks to, you know, have some over time, mass movement of people giving up their their private car ownership. Yeah, so I will say it's true. One of the things that we do want is for people to feel the externality of their choice to own and drive a car. Right now, in all of America and in New York City, there's no, it's totally possible to own and drive a car with without accounting for any of that externality, those externalities, you know, emissions contributing to climate change, major source of emissions in New York City, main source of uh, climate changing emissions um, in the country. Safety, you know, we have record deaths on our streets. Last year, it's trending that way again this year. Children, senior citizens, you know, young people being killed on our streets because there are so there's so much traffic and congestion and people driving recklessly. Um, you know, just the general, again, like livability aspect of it. Um, you know, my kids, my daughter now uh, walks to school. She takes the, the city bus and, and I'm scared for her. I ride my bike. My kids have no interest in riding their bikes because they're scared. So there's a there's a loss of joy that people don't even sometimes account for that when you own and drive a car, you're causing that harm for other people. So yeah, we, we do want to make those externalities clear, but agreed. Our movement is focused on you know that joyful transition and that is what we try to emphasize mostly. Um, and so get, getting people options, like I said at the top, like that's the, the key for us. So that can include buses and bikes and other forms of micromobility. One thing we haven't talked yet is also uh, car share. The city's expanding their car share program. You know, owning a car is actually incredibly onerously expensive, especially for low-income families. It can be a huge part of their budget, you know, buying the car, maintaining the car, gas, insurance. It's also a huge uh, time suck, right? Especially in New York City, you got to alternate side your car. I mean, people are spending hours doing this. Um, you sit in traffic. It's, it's you know, so painful. Um, so, so showing people that there is benefit to uh, giving up their car and car share is a great opportunity for, yeah, sometimes I need my car. I don't need it that often. Now I can just, you know, participate in this program, use a car when I need it and then return it. Um, and, and I will say, we've also been excited to see car share companies moving towards a model where you can also use them a bit longer term. You know, some people say, which you know we think is a little ridiculous, but some people say, well, I need my car to go to my country house, right? Um, you know, I can't get to my country house on the train, so I need my car. Well, uh, you know, you could participate in a car share program where you know you use that car on the weekend to get to your country house, and then during the week, someone's using it, you know, when they need to go shopping, um, so that we're not having as many cars on the street. Um, and then, uh, yeah, again, I think it's just choices and helping people see that they they can actually have a better life without a car. The issue, one of the other big issues that comes up in a lot of these discussions. Uh, so you, um, one of the planks in your agenda is an e-bike rebate program. Uh, there's a bunch of concerns out there from people who think 
e-bikes are, you know, flying around too much as it is. There's too many e-scooters, e-bikes, um, you know, people don't pay enough attention to the rules. Obviously, as you already noted, there's a much bigger issue with the way people drive cars and trucks. Not, you know, that's that's not even something, you know, we need to entertain in this discussion. Um, but concerns about, you know, even people who um, are walking or riding uh, non-electric bikes, um, you know, concerns sometimes about the speed and, and other things of the electric bikes and the electric scooters. What's the vision there? Is there is is the is the vision from your perspective we should be removing uh you know a significant amount of space away from the motor vehicles that we can then create more space for the electric scooters the e-bikes where we can you know create enough space for for all the people and types of mobility that are not the the cars and trucks um you know in redesigning our street space or or how do, how does that um you know how does that sort of evolution happen in your from your perspective. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, we built bike lanes, you know, 10, 15 years ago that reflected the idea of, you know, single bikers kind of riding down the bike lane. Um, and now we have seen such a bike boom that, that they don't, they're not adequate for the demand anymore. Um, DOT just released actually a stat. They did bike counts on First Avenue. And in an hour, there were uh, 1,100 cars went down the street, 750 people on bikes. So we're, we're reaching parity, but the space allocated is dramatically in favor of cars. Um, so yeah, allocating more space, I think would go a long way because right now, if, if you know, the lane is blocked, <laughs> which is another problem, or you are on an e-bike and there's a you know standard bike going down the bike lane, you might need some space to pass. Um, so wider bike lanes, more space dedicated, um, but I do just want to say, you know, some of these sco scooters, motorbikes that are illegal, you know, we're not in favor of people should not be riding illegal vehicles. It's important to have the clarity between an electric bike and then a, you know, moped motorcycle and uh, the, the kind of thing in between it is. It can be scary for people on bikes, you know, even. Um, and I know you said we don't have to talk about it, but I always feel like it's important to note that, uh, you know, cars and vehicles, trucks, buses kill, you know, like I said, hundreds of people every year on a bike accident, maybe one or two people a year are, are killed that way. So it, I understand people's Doesn't. fear, but it's not based in data. Yeah. Um, but, but, but some of that gets at sort of the livability issues, you know, you talk to especially older New Yorkers, you know, um, you, you get a lot of, you know, you get a lot of people who, um, you know, I think they, they, they understand certainly the dangers of cars and trucks and, and don't need to be told about that, but they also have concerns about sort of like the, the rules of the road, so to speak. And I don't, you know, just mean the road, I mean, the sidewalks and all the other spaces where people are, um, again, not necessarily being killed, but, um, uncomfortable and feeling like, actually the city is is going you know is not going in a more livable direction by some of these changes because there's so many different things to contend with um you know and that's where you see i think especially among older new yorkers um you know again more taxi rides more for hire vehicle for hire vehicle rides they can't count on the buses you know no almost nobody can count on the buses to get them where they need to go on time so you get people more into vehicles whether they own them or they're um, you know, hiring them. Um, all right. We don't have too much longer here. So I want to get into a few uh, other things. You want to um, eliminate all city 
parking placards. You don't you don't even want to um, reduce them and go to an electronic system and more enforcement. You you don't think there should be any city parking placards for city employees? Is that correct? That's correct. And and is it you you don't see any justification that you know city workers uh, have to go to various building sites and they you know they they have to go do different things as part of their job uh, with many stops and it's not necessarily something where they can take public transit and you're you're eliminating in your vision many other parking spots and but they shouldn't have a placard to be able to park you know temporarily in in certain locations for doing their jobs. So I think it's important to note at the outset how much this program is abused, and it, it's been impossible for the city to manage that abuse. Um, we see, you know, an MTA vest on a dashboard, and the person is parked uh, in a, you know, fire hydrant or in a crosswalk. Um, so the program as it is just doesn't work, and I think it's it's hard to kind of root out the corruption without. Uh, eliminating the program. Um, yeah, I mean, we'd like to see more city workers commuting by public transit. I think that our city might value public transit more if more of its uh, you know, elected officials and, and employees were using it. Um, we'd like to see, you know, more use of, for example, cargo bikes. There are cars in parks, you know, there's there's park department cars driving around Central Park and Prospect Park and other parks um, that are supposed to be car free. They should be using, you know, at least smaller, lighter duty vehicles, you know, the kind of golf cart type uh, vehicle or cargo bikes. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, incentivizing people not to drive, especially into the central business district, is important. A couple of other things I want to hit on. the This explosion of deliveries, you know, especially it was already happening pre-COVID uh, and then just got supercharged during the pandemic as people were staying home and ordering uh, in more, whether it's stuff from Amazon or it's dinner or whatever it might be. Um, what it's... This is another instance where it's remarkable to me how slowly city government has acted and moved. And it's it's, you know, these delivery. This is part of the reason there's double parking all over the place. This is part of the reason that bus lanes are blocked and bike lanes are blocked. And then there's more traffic and people in the regular driving lanes are going crazy. Um, what should happen around you know, the the use of curb space relative to. Um, deliveries and the, uh, you know, sort of uh, one thing that concerns me is this question of if you dedicate more loading zone space and you create more space for uh, deliveries, we're only going further down this direction of, of incentivizing more and more delivery when that probably shouldn't be the goal. What's uh, what's the thinking on, on this? I, I guess I'm not sure why that shouldn't be the goal. You know, I like to talk about the fact, you know, I'm people a, should go I'm to the grocery goal. store. You know, people should probably go to the grocery store and not well, have, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a single working. I work full time. I have two kids. Like I, I love being able to order my groceries. It makes my life easier. And clearly hundreds of thousands, millions of other New Yorkers agree, you know, people who have to, you know, work two jobs or do shift work. It's not so easy for them always to just run out to the store to get something they need. The ability to order off of Amazon, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's a, a separate policy issue that, you know, people have other strong feelings about. But I will say, A, I don't necessarily think that we do need to be trying to get away from that. And, and B, 
we're not going to, whether we think it or not, like this is the re new reality. Um, and to your point, double parked, uh, you know, delivery trucks all over the city is not working. It doesn't work for anyone. It doesn't work for the delivery drivers, frankly. Um, it doesn't work for the delivery companies. You know, a few of the big ones have the stipulated fines program where they're kind of putting that into the cost of doing business. But a lot of small trucking companies that, you know, a, a number of parking tickets can really impact their, their ability to do business. So this isn't working for anyone. Cities around the country are experimenting with smart loading zones, with, you know, enforcing loading zones like this works. Um, you know, we also I think the, the micro hubs idea, you know, switching more of the deliveries to cargo bikes and hand carts uh, out of centralized locations. Like there's a lot of things we can be doing here, but I, I just think we have to face this reality and adjust, you know, adjust the city to accommodate it. Since I can't keep you too much longer. You have this um, forever, but. <laughs> <laughs> you have this uh, extensive agenda. Again, I'll point people to find it and read through it. It's very digestible. The open plans 2023 legislative agenda uh, for New York and their city actions and state actions and bills and administrative uh, things that can be done just from uh, city government. Um, in terms of sort of the bigger scale changes and things in this agenda, is there anything we haven't talked about that are one or two or three more things you just want to sort of shout out that would have, you know, in your mind, sort of some of the biggest scale impact? Um, you know, there's uh, support for a bill to daylight, you know, 100 intersections a year. That seems like one that would have a really big, you know, sort of broad impact. Um, what are a couple other things we haven't talked about that you, you know, want to highlight for people? And you don't even have to take my construct if there's something that's that's less of the sort of broad impact and just something that's particularly near and dear to you that's in this agenda. Shout it out to before we before we say goodbye. But what are a couple of things we haven't talked about that you want to highlight for people? Well, this one is both near and dear to me and I think probably the most impactful thing, which would be to eliminate parking mandates in the city's zoning code. So for folks who don't know, parking mandates were put in place uh, all around the country in the 50s and 60s when, you know, the kind of Robert Moses era planning was that every family would have a car, uh, you know, they'd be able to drive to, you know, the the country for their entertainment and, um, you know, the, that a car was a symbol of uh, upward mobility for every American family. Right. Um, the beach. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we got, yeah, we got the bridges, we got Jones beach. Um, so uh, it's had really enormously negative impacts. Um, I could not go into all of them right now, even if we had another half an hour, just, just for people who, who yeah, aren't I, as familiar. I'll, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll give a quick summary, but I will just say, um, Henry Grabar has an amazing new book out called Paved Paradise for folks who want to dig deeper into this. It really goes into it. But, um, you know, I would say the two biggest things that this has done is um, it has incentivized car ownership, of course. And when you have parking in your building, you're incentivized to own a car and then drive it. And then you want parking where you're going to go. Um, and this has just contributed directly to sprawl in America um, and to, you know, continued use of cars to our climate crisis. It also dramatically increases the cost of housing. Um, you know, in New York City, especially uh, estimates are that it costs one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to build one parking spot 
in a new residential building. That cost is being directly passed on to renters, many of whom don't actually own cars. Uh, it's, you're much more likely to own a car if you're you know, wealthier and if you uh, own your home. Um, so renters are subsidizing the cost of parking for more wealthy individuals. Um, and you know, we're in a housing crisis. Uh, everyone knows it. You know, you you talked about the different uh, takes you got on the state budget. Um, Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just terrible policy. And we've seen cities around the country rolling back these parking mandates with, uh, you know, to great effect. Um, just one example here in New York state is Buffalo that lifted these mandates in 2017 and have seen a, you know, a, a housing boom costs coming down. And then it's important to note, though, that they still developers still do build parking a lot of the time because, you know, like we talked about earlier, a lot of these neighborhoods in New York City are transit uh, poor and, and you know people do still need cars. So in areas where um, there's great transit and developers are right now required to build parking, it's totally insane, increases the cost of housing, increases congestion on the streets. We shouldn't be doing it in areas where people really do still need parking. Developers probably will still build it, but probably not as much. Even there, I mean, the stories I could tell about affordable housing developments and attempts to build affordable housing that require parking and often just make it totally impossible to do, um, dramatically increase the cost, make mean that they can build fewer units. So again, in this housing crisis, um, and also with our congestion and our traffic violence and, and all of these other issues, um, it's just terrible policy, and, and we'd like to see the city roll these back. And we expect that they will be doing some reform in the upcoming uh, City of Yes Zoning for Housing Affordability Opportunity. Um, and so, you know, we hope advocates will come out and support that reform for sure. Yeah, no, that's in development from the Department of City Planning, uh, a package of zoning text amendments from the city. The first one is out. A couple others are in development. And the one focused on, on housing uh, is probably where... The parking question will be so that'll be interesting yep. to watch any last thing you want to throw out there that we haven't touched on one more um you know i i think we touched on most of it yeah there's there's a few bills in the state um we're almost nearing the end of session been a short legislative session after that budget uh debacle um but uh in addition to the e-bike rebate bill um we've been really pushing sammy's law in coordination with transportation alternatives and families for safe streets this would give new york city the ability to lower our speed limit um you know at our discretion instead of having upstate legislators uh tell us what our speed limit can be seems like it should be an easy win but we see a lot of pointing fingers still like uh this is you know the city needs to do something well the albany needs to do something so we're just calling on everyone involved to to get it done we've got a few more weeks in albany we need the assembly to pass this bill um and we need the city council to pass a home rule resolution and, and let's just get this done and you know save lives on our streets all right we got to a lot uh sarah lind is co-executive director of open plans Thank you for the time and the conversation. Appreciate it. We'll check back in as uh, as you know, the city and state uh, agendas unfold, and we'll see what the mayor, the governor, and the local the local legislature and the state legislature are willing to do here. But thanks very much for the time. Thank you so much.